1967, a team of PhD students at Cambridge University finished building a telescope. It was a radio telescope, meant to search for and research mysterious objects in the sky called quasars. Quasars were a recently discovered phenomena at the time. Strange radio frequencies coming from space. The word quasar comes from quasi-stellar, kind of star-like. In other words, they looked like stars, but they didn't act like stars. And for a brief time when they were discovered in the 1950s, people thought they were signals from aliens. The birds even wrote a song about them. Now, quasars didn't turn out to actually be aliens, of course, as exciting as that would be, but they were still really mysterious. In fact, astronomers didn't reach a consensus, a scientific consensus, about what quasars were until the 1980s. They turned out to be objects at the center of galaxies surrounding supermassive black holes. Pretty cool. So in the 1960s, quasars were still fresh. They had no idea what they were looking at. And that's why those students at Cambridge were building the radio telescope, to look at quasars. Radio telescopes don't show an image like a regular backyard telescope does. Instead, they look for radio frequencies, which show up as black scribbles on long sheets of chart paper. Or at least they did at the time. The Cambridge telescope produced 96 feet of these scribbles per day. One of the PhD students who worked on the telescope was named Jocelyn Bell Burnell, and it was her job to analyze those 96 feet of scribbles by hand. Late one night, Jocelyn came across what she called a bit of scruff in the data. An anomaly, which appeared as a regular pulse, up and down, every 1.33 seconds. It wasn't a quasar. It was something else. It looked almost like a beacon, and it seemed to be coming from a single point in space. Jocelyn and her team were perplexed. The signal looked man-made, but it, it, it couldn't be. No star was known to behave like this. It wasn't radio interference from Earth. That was ruled out. Yet, it pulsed with perfect clock-like regularity. There was, of course, the elephant in the room. What if the signal was made by somebody else? The team didn't really believe they were seeing a signal from an alien civilization, but couldn't prove that they weren't. In an homage of sorts, they dubbed the object LGM-1. The LGM stands for Little Green Men. It wasn't long before Jocelyn found a similar signal, coming from a different patch of sky. And then another, and another, and another begging the question, what are the odds that if this is E.T. that we're picking up, they're showing up the same way in a bunch of places all at one time? Not very high. As you can guess, they weren't looking at aliens. What they were looking at were fast-spinning, ultra-dense stars, like cosmic tops, a new class of astrophysical object. They called them pulsars, referring to the pulse of the signal, like a heartbeat, except in this case, devoid of life. The pulses Jocelyn detected in 1967 are often considered one of the most suggestive of an alien source ever detected. Looking back, it's difficult to understand that they had 
absolutely no idea what they were looking at. During that brief window in 1967, for all they knew, they could be gazing at the answer to one of life's greatest questions, blinking at them from space in perfect clock-like intervals. In the time since her discovery, Jocelyn has become a highly respected astronomer. In a 1999 interview with NASA, Jocelyn was asked what surprises her most about the universe. Here's her response. I think what surprises me most are the surprises, the discoveries that are unexpected, the results that suddenly turn, turn the tables on what we previously understood. The surprises keep rolling in in a quite dramatic way, and that's, I think, what surprises me most, the uncertainty about astronomy. The uncertainty about astronomy. The surprises. They certainly do keep rolling in. Now, the reason I told you about the discovery of pulsars is because it closely echoes a story that's unfolding right now in astronomy. The story of Tabby's star. The star is named after Tabitha Boyajan, a postdoctoral fellow at Yale University. Yeah, my, my dream come true, Tabby's star. <laughs> got a star named after me. And it's a weird one. <laughs> she first saw this star years ago. Yeah, when it was past me, it was just like, okay, well, what's this? <laughs> and I was like, I have no idea. And there was, you know, uh, a couple other people there with me and I showed it to them. They were like, oh, that's weird. And I think over the years, everybody, like, I mean, nobody has anything to say about it other than like, oh, that's, that's very peculiar, <laughs> you know? Um, I mean, at least a hundred professional astronomers have seen this light curve and couldn't attribute it to anything that we know of. But it's not Tabby's star itself that's peculiar. As far as stars go, it's rather ordinary. What's so perplexing is what's around Tabby's star. There's something there, orbiting. And we have no idea what it is. If you follow space news at all, this story may sound familiar to you. It was big around the end of 2015. I saw um, Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about it on The Tonight Show. Yeah, yeah, it was on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, yeah it was, it was kind of all over the place. It was, it was very overwhelming. Let's talk about a, a, a subject that's got a lot of people excited right now. There is a star out there, KIC 8462852. A lot of 852 fans out there tonight. And we have this telescope that's been staring right at it for a number of years. With one purpose in mind, to find Earth-like planets orbiting sun-like stars. But scientists say something strange keeps getting in between the telescope and the star. They can't figure out what it is. That's, well, it's got stuff we don't know what it's it is. It's dimming by 22%, not like 1%. We'd, it's a big dip and it happens frequently. Yeah, we don't know what it is. Right. And this could be the biggest story of the past 500 years, or it could be the biggest wild goose chase since the Loch Ness Monster. Okay, okay, okay. Bit of a mouthful, but there's stuff about the star that's even harder to understand. And most of that hype came from an article published in The Atlantic called The Most Mysterious Star in the Galaxy. I guess I, was, I thought like, oh, this will be sort of like a nice little hit for the week. Um, I did not expect it to be on Saturday Night Live and then Tonight Show that very weekend. This is the guy who wrote that article. I'm Ross Anderson. I'm a senior editor at The Atlantic. I write about science uh, and technology and health 
mostly, uh, and I have sort of a thing for the space sciences. I've done some high-impact stuff before, but never seen a reaction like that. You know, millions of people read the Atlantic story. Untold numbers, I suspect, read stories that covered it. It was strange to be part of a firestorm like that, to say the least. And there could be many reasons why this story drew the attention it did. But there's one clear reason above all others. Someone said aliens. And we'll get to that, we'll get to that. But first, let's rewind to a simpler time, before SNL and Late Night and the Atlantic article. Back when Tabby's star was simply another quiet, scintillating point of light hidden in the night sky. Seven, six, five. Our story begins on March 7th, 2009, with the launch of a NASA mission called Kepler. Zero and liftoff of the Delta II rocket with Kepler on a search for planets in some way like our own. As the announcer guy said, Kepler's mission was to find planets around other stars called exoplanets. Kepler looked at over 150,000 stars in a section of space called the Kepler field. It's a small square of space near the constellation Cygnus. And it measured the brightnesses of these stars for almost four years, looking for what astronomers call transits. And so that's like a decrease in light when, the, when a planet goes in front of the star. A transit causes a tiny dip in the apparent brightness of the star. Every few months, we download all the Kepler data and plot it out, and we end up with a light curve. That's a measure of a star's brightness over time. This is where astronomers look for those transits. So every time a planet passes in front of a star, between the star and our eyes, it gets just a little bit dimmer, and that causes a dip. Kepler collected over 150,000 light curves, including the light curve for Tabby's star. Computers did most of the legwork. They can look through and pretty reliably find these dips, these transits, which indicate exoplanets. But there was still a chance that they'd miss something. Remember when Jocelyn had to look through all that 96 feet of chart paper by hand every single day? Well, that's partially because humans are better at finding visual patterns than computers are. That was true in the 60s and it's true now. And that's what we're looking for here, recurring small dips. Astronomers wanted human eyes to look through the data as well, just in case. So they reached out to the public regular plebeians like you or me or anybody, to help classify these Kepler light curves and find exoplanets. They called the program Planet Hunters. It's crowdsourcing. Um, you don't need to know anything uh, to do this type of thing. Like you, my, my son does it oh. and he's six. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think he still thinks he's going to find like, you know, a planet like flying across the screen at some point. Uh, I don't think there was much expectation at the beginning that we would find many planets that the supercomputers missed, but uh, in fact, we did actually. This is Daryl LaCourse. He's a planet hunter. You know, embarrassingly, they call me an amateur astronomer, but I live in Seattle and I don't actually own a backyard telescope right now. That's and like I the did. one thing you need, like it's the one tool. Right, right. <laughs> you know, so I like, I like to flippantly joke, well, I just borrow a telescope in space. It works a lot better. Now, most of the light curves that the planet hunters look through from the Kepler data are normal. There's nothing there, not even an exoplanet. Once in a while, if they're really lucky, and this is pretty rare, they'll find recurring small dips, which indicate an exoplanet in orbit. It's even rarer to find one that the computers didn't find, one that the computers missed. 
But there's one light curve among all the 150,000 that Kepler looked at, which is just totally unique. There's nothing else like it. That's a light curve for Tabby's star. It seems like a long time has passed now since the original Kepler mission ended and we never forgot about this light curve. Um, but certainly I don't think any of us uh, on the amateur side would have ever expected it might become the most interesting light curve we found. The light curve of Tabby Star is Exhibit A. It's inexplicable. And it's the crux of this story, the smoking gun. What exactly, when you look at the light curve, what's, what stands out right away that's just so weird about it? Well, Kepler observed it for four years. For about 95% of the time, it's completely flat. In other words, totally ordinary. But for the other 5% of the time, um, it goes, uh, it drops in brightness in uh, a, couple of, <laughs> like a couple of different ways. So the dips in the light curve are measured as a percentage of the light that they block out. So planets cause small dips, usually lasting only a few hours. Jupiter, for example, would cause a dip of around 1%. What they find with Tabby's star are these massive, asymmetrical, ragged, really strange, bizarre dips of up to around 20%, lasting for days and weeks, not hours. There are two big dipping regions. One halfway through and one at the end. The one about halfway through well, lasted for about a week. It shot down in a sharp spike and then gradually returned to normal over the course of a week. And that's all it consisted of. It was very smooth, you know, it lasted for about a week and then that was it. And then the ones at the very end, so that's like two years later, they're asymmetric. They're very like sporadic and ragged, like there's a whole lot of ups and downs. Um, and it lasts, the whole period lasts for like, you know, almost three months. It's bizarre, and clearly not planets. Then, just as things were getting interesting... And then the Kepler spacecraft dies and we, can't, we don't have any more observations of it, which is a big cover, but yeah. it was getting really, really interesting at the end. Two of Kepler's reaction wheels broke which basically means that it couldn't keep steady in orbit. It couldn't keep a steady image. Good news is, after some downtime and a lot of head scratching, NASA partnered with some genius engineers and managed to salvage the mission and resurrect Kepler as K2, a new mission, a phoenix from the ashes. And I'm glad they did it because it's, you know, they're still taking some really great data. They're still finding planets, mm -hmm. new planets in, in different fields. Except for Tabby, the catch. But we can't look at the Kepler field anymore, so... Yeah, um, so you can't look at the star anymore. Or we can can't you? look at the star anymore. Yeah, real bummer. So Tabby's star has again slipped out of sight, which sucks because it was just getting good. And also because Tabby and her team need more data. All we have are the four years of Kepler data and the two big dips, which raise more questions than they answer. Without more data, we're in the dark. I spoke with one of Tabby's colleagues, Jason Wright, Assistant Professor of Astronomy and Astrophysics at Penn State. He and Tabby have been working pretty closely together on trying to figure this star out. And when I asked him what could be causing it, he broke it down for me like this. Well, I mean, I like to say that um, I think we both have sort of two categories of, of explanations for what's going on. We've got the good ideas, the good explanations, and we've got the bad explanations. And the good explanation column is empty. 
We just don't have any good explanations. The bad explanations all don't work in some way. And so we just rank them by how implausible they are, because they're all implausible uh, or impossible. The first idea, of course, is that there's something wrong with the data. <laughs> you know, there's got to be something wrong with, <laughs> with the telescope or something like this here. And so like, what was really comforting is I went to a workshop for the Kepler Space Telescope in November. I talked to at least a dozen people there, and they were like, the data is good. We looked at this and this, and like, yeah, it's good. Don't worry. <laughs> I was like, it's good data. Okay. That was ruled out pretty quick. They've exhausted all the obvious bad explanations by now. Giant planet. It can't be a giant planet. You can't have a single object blocking 20% of a star's light and have it be a planet. It's, is it an orbiting star? Now, sometimes other stars pass in front of the star. You have a binary system, two stars orbiting each other. And that can cause very big dips because the star can block most of the other stars. So you might see it get 20% dimmer. But those are very regular. Every time the star goes around, you see it get dimmer again. Um, and those have very characteristic patterns. And this didn't look anything like any of those. Accretion disk. If you have a disk of material around a star, it will actually glow from the starlight kind of heating it up a little bit. Um, and we see nothing like this. You know, once you've ruled that out, <laughs> then, it, then it gets kind of tricky. Dust cloud. There isn't any evidence of a cloud there. Pulsations, star spots, polar spots, black hole disks. Astronomers have thought of pretty much everything. For various reasons, none of these seem to cut it. And that's the thing. Um, Dr. Boyajian worked for four years to study this thing, to find something extraordinary about it, anything that might explain these light curves. And everything about it's totally normal. It's not young, it doesn't have a disc, it's not spinning too fast. <laughs> it, it looks normal pretty much any way you look at it. It's just an ordinary star. <laughs> and so far, only one theory has really stuck. Dr. Boyajian eventually landed on the hypothesis that it's a giant swarm of giant comets. It is coming into the star and blocking out the light. These are huge comets, very, very huge comets. And this is one of the reasons why people are like, oh yeah, I don't think so, because that would take a whole lot of comets, huger than anything that we have in our solar system by like many factors of 10. Um, it's just, you know, not reasonable, but you know, we don't know what's around other stars. It is kind of a stretch, but it's the best guess that we had on what it was. But Tabby still had a paper to write. It was probably the hardest paper I ever wrote because, I mean, there were so many people involved in so many different parts. We're not trained to, you know, report something that's not a conclusion, you know, like we're trained to like, you know, do an experiment, you know, like, you know, present your data and this is your conclusion. Like this had like, well, you know, we, Big question mark. we have a good idea of what this is. Right. In her paper, she presents her findings and essentially concludes that we need more data to reach a conclusion. There is one explanation, however unlikely, that Tabby didn't mention in her paper, because in serious astronomy, it can be sort of an icky topic and also hard to prove. Right. And one thing that's been thrown out there. Have you heard about this, Seth? Yeah, yeah. What, they, tell the people what they, they think, think it might be. They think it's the Borg. <laughs> <laughs> they think it might be a, an alien. They're saying alien megastructure is one unlikely but possible Excuse answer. Excuse me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Now, you may be wondering, okay, Tabby, well, how do aliens actually explain this light curve? This is an excerpt from Tabby's TED Talk about the star which you should watch. Okay, well, imagine a civilization that's much more advanced than our own. In this hypothetical circumstance, 
the civilization would have exhausted the energy supply of their home planet. So where could they get more energy? Well, they have a host star, just like we have a sun. And so if they were able to capture more energy from this star, then that would solve their energy needs. So they would go and build huge structures. These giant megastructures, like ginormous solar panels, are called Dyson spheres. Dyson spheres might sound like science fiction, and in some ways they are science fiction, but they fit the predicted path of what advanced civilizations might build. It's possible. In 2005, an astronomer named Luke Arnold pointed out that when Kepler was up there looking for planets passing in front of stars, it would also notice if any of these things existed, and it would be very sensitive to them if they were passing between the Earth and the star. And he showed that the Kepler spacecraft could probably tell the difference between a planet and a giant structure of some kind. And so uh, he said we should be on the lookout for things passing in front of stars, making them get dimmer, that aren't planets and don't look like planets and are otherwise inexplicable. Sound familiar? So I had that on my mind, and I was in fact trying to write up a paper that argued that Kepler didn't see any of those. But then came Tabby's star. I couldn't say that Kepler didn't find any giant alien megastructures until we figured out what's going on with Tabby's star. So when she showed it to me, I thought, well, shoot, now I can't, now I can't write that paper that I was going <laughs> to write saying we hadn't seen any of those things. <laughs> now we have to solve Tabby's star so that I can finish my paper that says we didn't find anything. <laughs> The whole Dyson Sphere hoopla is the reason this story attracted so much attention. Just search Google Images for Tabby Star and you'll see what I mean. Yeah, it's it's fun to think about and you know, it definitely, you know, gets people excited. It wasn't, you know, what we we're out to do at the beginning, but um, it's definitely got a lot of people excited about it. It got a lot of astronomers excited about it too, which which ended up being good for us because, you know, we got a lot more data once it came in because people were like, oh, I have all this new data for you. And I'm like, oh, really? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but, you know, talking to like, you know, hundreds of reporters trying to get the, you know, story straight that, you know, we're not Skyping with aliens on Friday night, like, because that's what, you know, that's what who's getting phone calls, you know, like all, you know, times of night, just like, you know, so you're talking to aliens. I'm like, no, <laughs> but you feel like you have to answer all these because, you know, otherwise they're going to assume the most exciting story or just kind of elaborate a little bit. And then it just kind of takes off and yeah, it gets a little out of control. I think the problem is when the media runs away with it and, you know, it, it gets completely overhyped just because someone said aliens. And so it, the, the lesson is, you know, don't use the word because if a, if, if a reporter hears you say that, you know, it's going to be off everywhere and everyone's going to have to answer questions about why it's aliens and everything. And so th that's, that's a danger. And I don't know, maybe, I don't know if it's possible to train the media that just because someone said that, that doesn't mean that this is a big story. <laughs> so the Dyson Sphere hypothesis is exciting to think about. But we really don't know anything about what a megastructure would be like. <laughs> it definitely would, you know, be into caution about taking anything seriously about, you know, something like that does exist until we find like, you know, actual evidence of, you know, some kind of sign that, that it isn't something natural. If you're going to seriously consider extraterrestrial intelligence as a hypothesis, you have to see a signal. And with this in mind, Jason reached out to an old colleague of his. He contacted me and he said, uh, 
if if I had an interesting candidate for a for a SETI search, what what would what would I do? This is Andrew Simeon. I'm the director of the Berkeley SETI Research Center at the University of California at Berkeley. Jason and Andrew got to talking about this star as a potential SETI candidate. And eventually, um, we got to the point where he wanted to to write a proposal, just in case, just to check, because it's the weirdest thing out there, and that's that's what you should do. Now, the best telescope to use to look at Tabby's star would be the Green Bank Radio Telescope in Virginia. It's sort of the Rolls Royce of radio telescopes. It's huge. It's the biggest movable land object in the world at over 100 meters diameter. And it's located in the United States National Radio Quiet Zone in Virginia, where radio frequencies are restricted by law to allow for good quality observations. So it'd be perfect. And they wrote up a proposal. And um, I was hesitant at first because I was like, well, this is going to really like, you know, <laughs> put a black mark over my name. Like, this girl's crazy. She doesn't do serious science. Despite hesitations, they submitted their proposal and expect to begin observations in October of this year. There are a number of ways to look for ET, depending how close we are to the planets we're looking at. We can take samples or analyze the atmosphere for chemicals that suggest life. Oxygen and methane are prime suspects. But most exoplanets are too far away to do that. So we rely on SETI. We don't have any way of... of of directly detecting intelligent life per se, but we can det detect technology. And if we detect an extraterrestrial technology, of course, we assume that there was some intelligent life that, that created that technology. Would it be fair to call astrobiology something of a blind science? Because there's so many unknowns about it. Well, I, I, don't, I think there are aspects of it that are very concrete. You know, the elephant in the room, of course, is maybe this is what you're alluding to, is that, uh, again, we only know of one example of life uh, anywhere in the universe. So astrobiology is, is, in some sense, kind of inherently a speculative field because we don't, we don't really know uh, whether that exists. But So for now, I guess it, it is, there is an inherent bit of, of speculation to it. Um, but perhaps in a few decades or maybe even less, uh, the field of astrobiology will change very much from, from one in, in which it's kind of inherently speculative to one in which we, we know for certain that, that life uh, exists elsewhere. Yeah, I guess we have really no choice but to search for life as we know it, right? Because it's the only example we have. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. You know, the, the nice thing about SETI, if I could sort of stand on my own soapbox for a, a minute, is, is that the kind of searches that, that we do are completely agnostic to the form of life that actually created the technology. It, it might be carbon-based life like us. It might be silicon-based life. It might be artificially intelligent life. And, and, you know, it could be really anything. Uh, but we assume that, that other intelligent life will have the same use for electromagnetic technology as, as we do. And the, the kind of you know, technology, again, that we look for is, uh, is independent of, of the type of life. I think people that look for, for simple life or, or dumb life, as we sometimes like to call it, they have a, a harder job because I think they can really only search in, in most cases for, uh, for life that, that looks very much like the kind of life that we have, we have on Earth. There are just so many hypotheticals to consider when looking for alien life. We don't know how it would manifest itself, how they'd behave. The whole idea of a Dyson Sphere is just that, an idea, a hypothetical, a concept. Really, who knows how aliens would behave or what they'd build? Anything's on the table. What if they don't follow the same rules of life as we do? And what if they don't even use the same kind of technology that we're looking for? You, you can't rule it out. And that makes a bad hypothesis. 
The problem with invoking aliens to explain things is it's not predictive. Um, I mean, if they're giving off radio transmissions, then we can look for those. So we should check. We should totally check. And we should absolutely look because it's the best chance we've got in that avenue. But um, we don't know what aliens would do. We don't know what advanced civilizations, why they'd build giant solar panels. We can guess. We don't know how big we think they'd be. We don't know how far from the star. We don't know how many they'd build. We don't know how fast we can they can build them. It's not predictive. So if you say, well, maybe it's aliens, everyone's like, okay, so now what? So how do you confirm that? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and so that's the problem you know, with the alien hypothesis. You can always dream up something and say, sure, why not? They have physics we don't know about. That'll explain anything. They did it in Star Wars. Why couldn't they? Right, sure. Maybe it's Starkiller Base, draining <laughs> the star and making it dinner, dimmer. Why not? Um, okay, but what do you do with that? You can't, you can't really do much with that. So right. that's why the route to exploring the alien hypothesis is to look for unambiguous signs of intelligence, with radio communication, laser communication. You can try that. And um, you got to look somewhere, so you might as well look at the weird star. And then on the natural side, to figure out as much as you can about what it isn't, what natural thing it isn't. Um, but you can't, you can't prove it's aliens until you see a signal, I think. And uh, short of seeing a signal with SETI, communications SETI, um, all we can do is pursue natural hypotheses, which is great because it's a really interesting scientific target on the scientific merits. And so um, all the astronomers that are trying to understand this star are, in a sense, you know, doing SETI in the sense that they're doing the only thing you can do to show that it's aliens, which is rule out every possible natural explanation. Now, that's a really long road to hoe. <laughs> that just, I mean, that, that who knows? That could take forever. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the more natural explanations we can rule out, um, the more mysterious it becomes and hopefully the more, you know, we bring to bear on the star to figure out what's going on. Bottom line is this, if we have a hope of finding alien life, an interesting candidate, a mystery wrapped up in an enigma like Tabby's star, we might as well try, even if it takes an optimist. Like you said before, like the odds that you're going to find something like extraterrestrial life are just super low, right? So do you find that, do you find that discouraging? Um, well, we don't really know what the odds are. You know, different people have different guesses about um, the, the estimates for the, the prevalence of, of technologically capable life elsewhere in the universe. But I, you're right. It, it does, um, you know, certainly take, a, you know, an optimist uh, or at least someone that doesn't easily get discouraged to work in, in SETI. My sort of particular view on this is that it's such an incredibly fundamental question are, are we alone as, as intelligent beings in the universe that it's, it's worth continuing to work on and, and, and continuing to, to try hard at, at answering that question uh, regardless of, of the fact that, you know, you, you might get, get a little discouraged. I mean, I think every time I get even the littlest bit discouraged, I, you know, kind of step back and think to myself, the, the work that I'm doing is, is potentially going to be responsible for the most profound fundamental discovery that in the history of human discovery it's um there there's not a a greater question that can be asked in in my view you know if you think about it that way it's uh uh it's easy to kind of get your spirits up again
Now I should mention here that an initial SETI survey in October 2015 came up empty. It doesn't mean there's nothing there. A follow-up survey with the Green Bank Telescope will confirm that. And again, even if they don't find any signals, that won't stop some people from persisting that this is a Dyson Sphere built by aliens. That can't be ruled out. Okay, so let's do a quick recap here. In 2009, Kepler launches to look for exoplanets around other stars. So it's looking at all these stars, it finds one star, which is exhibiting a really strange light curve, meaning there's something obstructing it, something in its orbit, that we just don't know what it is. Astronomers are stumped, there's no known explanation, it's completely unprecedented and unique. Hypothetical alien megastructures come up as a possible explanation, something like a Dyson Sphere. It captures the public imagination, becomes a huge news story, and SETI is set to investigate. There we have it. But there's one more thing. Just when this star seems as strange as it can possibly get... Finally, it did something else weird, or it was discovered to have done something else weird. Um, there's an astronomer at Louisiana State University named Bradley Schaefer, and uh, he wanted to know if this had ever happened before, and he remembered the plate stacks at Harvard College Observatory. I called Dr. Schaefer up to talk about what he found. Just a heads up, the audio quality here isn't too great. Hey, uh, my name is Brad Schaefer. I'm a professor uh, in the Department of Physics and Astronomy at Louisiana State University. I spent a lot of time looking at old astronomical photographs of the sky, I should say, um, that can give you a long history of what a star has been doing over the last, well, more than a century. I heard about Tabby's star in the way everyone else did. Uh, a friend came up and said, hey, have you heard about this star? It is weird. And so he ponders it for a while, and then he thinks, you know, I wonder, well, Tabby only has data back to the time of the launch of Kepler, which was, I think, 2009. And I wonder what Tabby's star was doing before 2009. Hmm, where can I get the answer to that question? Fortunately for Dr. Schaefer, some astronomers began photographing the night sky over a century ago. The photographs are negatives, preserved on glass plates. And so, um, so it turns out the sky background is, is mostly clear, or relatively clear, that's the way it was developed to. And the stars appear as black dots of varying size. And so the brighter the star, the larger the dot, and the fainter the star, the fainter the, uh, the, the smaller and fainter the dot. The majority of these old photographic plates happen to be at Harvard College Observatory in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The Harvard collection contains photographs dating from 1890 to 1989. So I have a full hundred years of data. And so even now, I can go back and look at what the brightness of a star was in 1890. And so he thought, well, I'll be at Harvard in, in, in a week or two. I, I'll just go back and quickly check to see what the star was doing. So he goes to the Harvard archives and pulls out these photographs, and he starts to do his thing. Um, you, you have good measures of how bright Tabby's star is over, over the last century. And what he finds is astounding. And what I find is that Tabby's star is fading. It's getting dimmer. It's roughly 20% dimmer in 1989 than it was back in 1890. So it's dimmed by 20%. And stars don't do that. <laughs> I mean, this is just not something stars do. They don't get dimmer. Um, I mean, when they run out of hydrogen at the end of their lives, over a million years or more, they'll get brighter, actually, as they, as they run out of fuel. They don't get dimmer over 100 years. There's no precedent for this. No one's ever seen anything like this. There's no theoretical understanding of this. 
And so this is now the second unprecedented change in the star's brightness that's been noticed. So Tabby's star is doing something that ordinary F-type main sequence stars are not, should not be doing. They should not be dimming on the time, by 20% on the time scale of a century. A recent follow-up corroborated Dr. Schaefer's findings, showing that Tabby's star also dimmed by 3% in its overall magnitude over the course of Kepler's four-year observations, so between 2009 and 2013 or 14. So again, this likely wasn't a misread of the data. This is actually happening. Tabby's star is dimming. That's when we just went to the column of bad ideas and started erasing things as right. <laughs> too bad to even be on the list. And then we started putting things on the list to explain the dimming. And, you know, you can kind of work your way into some ideas about maybe why it got dimmer over 100 years. And they're really implausible. And, okay, maybe that's it. But then you're back to, okay, but what about the Kepler data? What, what's with the, the short-term big dips? And you realize your model doesn't explain those at all. And so Dr. Schaefer said whatever's causing one of these effects is probably causing them both. It's unlikely that it's doing two unprecedented unique things at the same time. Well, Occam's razor comes back and says the simpler answer is probably, is more likely to be correct. So, um, so we can come to at least a, a, a very likely conclusion that, yeah, there's only one mechanism involved for the Harvard dips and the Kepler dips, and, and, and well, we, that doesn't mean we know what that, that mechanism is, but they're probably the same. <laughs> and so this really, really makes it... Um makes it really tough and we're like okay if we had more data and this is a ton of data that we have and an amazing quality but you know knowing when it's going to dip again you know like what do these dips look like um how long do they last any of this um will help us really figure out what it is without more data it's difficult to predict the next dip when that will be so in order to solve the riddle of tabby's star we need more data one of the things you have not come back and asked me yet is how are we going to solve this question of Tabby's star? And here I can actually give you my best guess of how we're going to go solving it. I think that the, what is needed is going to be catching Tabby's star going into a dip. Now the trouble with that is we have to get an alert to know when Tabby's star is in dip so that somebody can go off and take a spectrum of this. But professional astronomers like me, we have limited resources for this kind of thing. And Kepler is on to a different mission. It's notoriously difficult and competitive to get any time on professional astronomical telescopes. So what you need here is you need some sort of a system by which people are continuously monitoring Tabby's star, waiting, waiting, waiting for it to go into a dip, and then you immediately alert the world, and then someone will uh, go off and take a spectrum. So Tabby and Jason launched a Kickstarter campaign to fund continuous observation of the star by a private network of telescopes. And I'm happy to say that, once again, citizen scientists have come in and saved the day. They surpassed their goal, which means that whenever the star goes into the next dip, it won't do so in the dark. Amateur astronomers with their backyard telescopes. Doctors and lawyers and firemen and nurses and everything else. Stepped up immediately and started observing the star nightly at their own facilities. We'll have countless eyes on the star, ready to record what happens next. 
and hopefully, finally, shed some light on what's going on. So we have a lot of telescopes on standby, just waiting for the call. There's a reasonable chance that we could catch Tabby Star in a dip coming up tonight, or maybe next week, or maybe next month. And when it goes faint, um, they'll notify the ABSO, who will then notify Tabby, who will then notify the world. <sighs> then we can throw everything we've got at it. And they'll go look at the star while this dipping is occurring. And she has uh, uh, telescopes lined up, which will then, upon alert, take a spectrum of Tabby's star. So we'll look at it in the infrared, X-ray, UV, the whole spectrum, right? Ca catching a spectrum of this star during a dip probably will be the breaking case where we'll actually be able to say, oh, that's what it is, it has to be such and so, and we can now work out the details. And then we'll be able to figure out what exactly is, uh, is between us and the star. If we don't go look, we're never going to know. The sky is full of stars, and, and astronomers have a hard time you know, exploring all of them. And when you start looking at things closely, you start coming up with these anomalies and things that are wacko weird. And so uh, at that level, Tabby Star is uh, just one of a long succession of things of stars up in the sky, which uh, at the time we first discovered, we didn't really know what they were doing. Many of those we have since understood. Um, some of them we haven't, and they're just back there. We don't quite know what to make of them. There's something new, and well, that's what Tabby's star is now, is we don't know what's going on, and we still don't. This is why we do this, right? To explore and discover, and uh, we be prepared for unexpected results. And uh... You know, there have been a few times in astronomy where the column of good ideas was empty for so long that astronomers said, you know, maybe we need to consider the extraterrestrial intelligence hypothesis. Say this goes down the way the pulsars did, and you know there may be a there'll be a footnote that you know they thought it was a little green man, but it was just a strangely behaving star. Well, this wasn't the first time, and it, it certainly won't be the last. I mean, uh, but it, but so far it's following the same progression in terms of we don't know what it is. The alien hypothesis comes up; it's grabbed the public's attention, uh, and now we get to figure out what's really going on. It's hard to imagine it being. Uh, nearly as amazing an object as pulsars and quasars, but there's something going on. And as a as a stellar astrophysicist, I'm really interested to know what this star is doing. Personally, as a scientist, my money is on the natural explanation. But don't get me wrong; I do think it would be awesome to find aliens. Either way, there is something new and really interesting to discover. Look. There's clearly something very strange going on around that star, right? But um, in all probability, it's nothing to do with extraterrestrials. And yet, to me, the, the one of the bigger stories there that I'm, I'm always shocked that has not fully penetrated the public consciousness is the Kepler Space Telescope and that whole mission. I mean, my sense is that when people look back to the early 21st century, 100, 200, 300, 400, maybe even thousands of years from now, one of the dominant things they're going to remember is this Kepler mission um, and this, this extraordinary moment in the history of ideas where people sort of discover that, wow, there are planets around nearly every star in the galaxy. What's amazing to me is that this star would have never been found by computers because we just weren't looking for something like this. And what's more exciting is that there's more data to come. There are new missions that are coming up that are observing millions of more stars. 
all over the sky. And just think, what will it mean when we find another star like this? And what will it mean if we don't find another star like this? Enigmas like Tabby star, quasars, and pulsars remind us of the questions we don't even know to ask. The unknown unknowns. The surprises. Inherent in science is a tantalizing uncertainty that the knowledge we desire may perpetually remain just beyond reach, like a carrot on a string. Yeah, yeah, and, 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 and you know, Mother Nature is not out there trying to help us. Um, we're trying to understand mysteries of Mother Nature, and she's under no obligation to help us out. And so right now, we don't have any good ideas. But you keep putting the time into this because you know that there's something weird and wacko, unique and new and exciting down the road. And maybe Tabby's star is this too. Is that is that sort of what you're hoping for? Well, of course we always hope for it. Um, um, but my hopes don't matter. <laughs> right. It just matters what the truth is, I guess. Like what that, what it, what it really is. Exactly. That's what we're doing. Um, the, the astronomers and the scientists, we are driven by reality. We want nature to tell us what reality is, not what our hopes and desires are. We are an evidenceocracy. We are driven by the evidence. If your idea doesn't match the evidence, then it's not a good idea. And at this point, um, I mean, a few years into researching it, are you getting are you getting sick of this star? Are you getting kind of tired of it, or no? Um, well, I mean, I have like a love hate relationship with it. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't say I'm sick of it. It's definitely like really exciting, and and I now have my own Wikipedia page, as you said. Like that's pretty cool. That's I don't know who cool. invented that, but that, <laughs> I was like, whoa. <laughs> but. I mean, it's pretty awesome how just something like this, I would have never expected it, but like can get the whole like world interested in astronomy again. Like, you know, it's just like, oh, wait, what? You know, people that are out in the backyard with telescopes, you know, it's just, you know, simple um, camera equipment, that sort of thing. They can they can do this kind of photometry um, for the star and actually get usable data. And so the AAVSO has set up, you know, a website that makes it, you know, fairly easy to upload your data. And so I go on there daily and check and like, okay, what's the star doing? Nothing. Okay, good. I don't have to do anything. And then <laughs> um, just preparing. Getting ready for that dip again. Getting ready for the dip again. Yeah. It's like a career project, and I don't know how long that's going to be. <laughs> it could be years, could be, you know, a decade. Could be, yeah. you know, hopefully maybe this year you guys get some data again. That'd be really cool. I'm going to follow that, up on it. So. That would be excellent. Yes. yes. It's fitting that Tabby's star is invisible to the naked eye. It forces us to take a closer look, and reminds us that in the cosmos, not everything is as it seems. Behind the scintillating stars and shrouded in the darkness between are the surprises, the unknown unknowns, waiting to be discovered. Now, if you want to participate in real scientific research, go check out Planet Hunters. You can be a Planet Hunter yourself. Go to www.zooniverse.org. That's Z-O-O-N-I-V-E-R-S-E.org. 
Tabby's star was brought to the attention of astronomers by planet hunters, citizen scientists, regular people like you or me. I don't even own a telescope and I can go do this. So a number of those people as well, a number of those planet hunters, those amateur astronomers, are credited as co-authors on Tabby's paper about the star. There's, I'm looking at the paper right now, there's a lot of them. <laughs> That's regular people who made it on a published paper. So it's it's truly real science you're contributing to as a, as a planet hunter. Quick shout out as well to a few planet hunters in particular, pointed out to me by Daryl, who first flagged Tabby Star as strange for professional astronomers to review. And those people are Andrew Suzik, Sam Goodman, and Abe Hoekstra. Without those people, we may not have actually found the star. So if astronomy isn't your thing, there are other options. There's a lot of projects you can participate in in the Zooniverse, from arts to biology, climate science, history, medicine, there's all sorts, literature, and they're all using the power of citizen science. So if you have some spare time, if you get home from work and you have some brain power left to put towards real science, go to Zooniverse. One project I've been enjoying is called Decoding the Civil War. You can transcribe real Civil War telegraphs that are scanned into the computer. They haven't been looked at before. They're primary documents and you can look at them. It's so cool. So I digress. I could go on about that forever. Go check them out, Zooniverse.org. If you want to follow dedicated news about Tabby Star for updates by the team itself researching it, go to www.wheresthefluxx.com. This episode was produced independently by me, Asher Isbrucker. I'd like to thank all of the people who gave their time and lent their voices for this episode. There's so many. Tabitha Boyajan, Jason Wright, Andrew Simeon, Brad Schaefer, Ross Anderson, and Daryl LaCourse. Big thanks to all of you, of course, for, for lending me your time and your voices for this episode. Obviously, I couldn't have made it without you, so thank you. Music in this episode was by Lee Rosevere, Corsica S, Chris Zabriskie, Sergei Sheremizanov, Little Glass Men, Lee Madiford, and Ketza. You also heard excerpts from CTA 102 by The Birds, and an excerpt from the X-Files theme, and also an excerpt from The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. And thanks as well to Professor Jamie Matthews. I sat down with him last December to talk about the star and we ended up having brunch for four hours and talking about everything Star Wars. It was just, it was very interesting. Unfortunately, that interview couldn't make it into the cut. And thanks as well, finally, to you, the listener. Whoever you are, thank you. Thank you for lending me your ears, especially if you've made it all the way to the end of the credits here. Thank you. This is my second podcast episode now. My first one was called Find Satoshi, which you should listen to if you like this at all. No updates there, by the way. No one's found him yet. So that game's open. It was a tremendous challenge to put this whole episode together, but I'm, I'm glad I did, and I learned so much in doing it. Um, yeah. So on to the next one.